following program does not offer personal medical advice. Please consult your doctor before using any treatment or product we cover. Welcome to Go to Health Radio with your host, Jonathan Marks. We provide a welcoming environment where experts educate you on important health topics, answer your questions, and provide information from which you can benefit in consultation with your doctor. And now, here is Jonathan Marks. Hello, everybody. Good to be back with you again today. We're covering two really interesting topics. First, we're talking about colon hydrotherapy, which we'll discuss what that is and how it can improve your health. That's with colon hydrotherapist Jolly Neal. And then we'll be talking the second part of the show with two PhD psychologists, Sam Goldstein and Bob Brooks. They've just published their 14th book together, this one called Tenacity in Children. And it's an eye-opening interview, so stay with us for that. But first, let's talk about the gut, of, the health of your gut. Your gut or your digestive system is the engine that drives your health. It takes in food and nutrients, it metabolizes what the body needs, and it expels the rest through elimination. So the question is, how healthy is your gut and how healthy is your energy engine? Do you suffer from things like constipation or bloating, gas, diarrhea? I hate to say these things, but we got to talk about it. A constantly full feeling, maybe low energy or poor sleep. Our first guest has helped numerous clients solve their issues, whether it's the digestive system itself or choosing a healthier lifestyle or paying attention to one's diet and just feeling all around better. She treats numerous patients per day, many of whom see her regularly to keep some regularity in their gut. So let me introduce Jolly Neal, colon hydrotherapist. She is the owner and technician of Amazing Healing Waters here in Las Vegas. She's been in business going on nine years and is very passionate about it because of her, of her success in helping others. For those of you nearby, you can visit her again. It's AmazingHealingWaters.com. And I invited her to the show because she knows so much about colon hydrotherapy in the body that her expertise and, as you will see, friendliness can introduce you to perhaps a simple, new, comfortable treatment you can consider wherever you live. Welcome, Jolly. How are you doing today? I am fabulous. I'm very excited to be here. Um, you kind of took a few of the words right out of my mouth as far as the success uh, part, my success in this crazy therapy treatment has yes. been helping others, you know, um, I've expanded and like you even touched upon going on nine years next month um, and the passion about what I do. And there are so many levels of different digestions that we'll talk about later as far as the facts or just the ailments that right. also attribute to our digestion, you Good. know? So let's, let's discuss first and help the audience understand what is colon hydrotherapy? Well, I also wanted to state, okay, well, we'll get into that. I was going to back up and just kind of give you a little bit of my background. Um, colon hydrotherapy is a treatment that a regulated water flow goes into the colon, okay? It's very important that there's a technician with you because I monitor and regulate all the water flow that actually enters into the colon. Mm -hmm. This we call the closed system. There is an open system and it's more aggressive. So you are in a room by yourself. The technician comes in and sets the water pressure at just whatever rate they, they put it into. Mm -hmm. I monitor that. So if someone's sensitive to that water pressure, mm -hmm. I can take it down. 
I also want to go very slowly as the colon is as long as you are tall. Mm-hmm. Okay. You go in filling very gently so it can seep into the crevices and creases and pockets of the colon. Mm-hmm. Okay. As we sit there and try to soak the colon, I have these different analogies. Um, you've got a casserole dish. You got to let it sit and soak for a little bit. So me being the technician with you um, helps me regulate the water pressure. And some people agree are more sensitive to the water pressure uh-huh. versus others. But I am there. And that's why I believe it's a safer system. Right. And I regulate that water flow and I uh-huh. can get further up into the colon as well. Okay, because you're really monitoring the pressure and you're also getting feedback, I'm assuming, from the patient as this goes. Correct. So as soon as you feel like that desire that you need to, you know, eliminate, we just release. You know, it's a very clean, a closed system because it travels through a tube, which Uh I do have videos on my website showing, you know, exactly how it is done. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, it's very gentle. People sometimes watch a video, but I'm such a conversationalist that, you know, our 45 minutes on the machine goes by pretty quick. Right. It's a so, very gentle, easy cleanse. And I need that time on the machine. Right. And, and for those of pe- people who are modest, I mean, this you're, you're very professional. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I do have a part of me, especially with 40% male clientele. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, you have to have a little sense of humor doing what I do. Uh-huh. And each one is, is an individual. And I work with that individual on their needs. So initially, when I meet someone, what actually brings you here? You know, there are different complaints. And then when I share with them all the other benefits, you know, then that's like, wow. And when they experience it, they realize how gentle it is. We just kind of get over the little discomfort thing. And, um, you know, let's move forward for our health. Right. So let's talk about how the colon hydrotherapy can help with health or relieve symptoms. I'm sure you've heard plenty of stories of people who come in with complaints and um, leave feeling a lot better. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I've got a list here that, you know, maybe I could describe a little bit of it. You know, number one is our constipation, bloating, and and like you had mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, our food combinations is what leads us to that. We have a horrible diet. We're doomed. So our digestive enzymes can't even really do what they do. Uh, properly because of our food combinations. Protein Mm. and carbohydrates do not mix. So when we digest Mm. or when we eat that, as it goes through our digestive system, it'll get stuck. It's not digesting properly. And that's due to our food combination. So I do work with a lot of people on diet, how they should eat certain, you know, foods and everything. It gets a lot more complicated, but We're not really good. So I do discuss about digestive enzymes. Um, So constipation and bloating, uh, gassiness, that all is attributed to why they come and see me. Mm -hmm. Um, Bad breath uh, is a big one because it's it's your trash. It's your dumpster. If it's not functioning properly, those toxins come back up in and throughout your mouth, Mm -hmm. you know? And so sometimes that is a digestive issue unless you have uh, gingivitis and then, you know, you kind of go see the dentist. Right. Irritability, even being overweight, uh, lower back pain. You see these guys with these big hard bellies. Well, a lot of that, how is their digestive system working? Mm -hmm. And if it's pushing on your lower back, a chiropractor is not going to help you. You know, Mm -hmm. I've had people go get x-rays. There's nothing wrong with them. The problem is, is they're backed up. 
mm-hmm. and they're so constipated that that can create a blockage. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as just tension and colds and asthma, uh, irritability, that a lot of times you're toxic. If you're ever hungover, you're like probably a little irritated the next day because mm-hmm. why? You're trying to eliminate the toxins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can help shrink hemorrhoids which a majority of us have from time of not eating right, especially women with, uh, uh, you know, delivery and having babies and Mm -hmm. then men that are overweight. Uh, When you clean your toxins out, you become more lively. So if you're fatigued, you create more energy and fatigue and depression to me go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So when you feel better, your depression goes away, you know, Mm -hmm. along with the fatigue, you sleep better. It can help with headaches. Uh, skin problems. We are hydrating from the inside out. A major problem that people do have is we don't drink enough water. And uh, that contributes a lot. So colon hydrotherapy, because I am putting water in, it's like your colon's like a sponge. You mm. know, it'll absorb and hydrate, which will make for easier and more fluid bowel movements. So it also helps, you know, with the skin to hydrate. Prostate troubles uh, for men because What happens if that starts to get enlarged? It pushes against that colon area uh, down by the anus. And I had a cancer patient and we did lose him, but he was beautiful and called me and said, thank you so much Mm. for helping him through those days because he was so backed up because that prostate was pushing against that, you know, anus area. So 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 those are a few. Yeah, good. That's quite a list to start with. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and, uh, and I'm sure, so you, there people are there with you for 45 minutes, and what's happening is you're slowly introducing hydration into the colon and trying to loosen things up, right? Correct. And we've got Correct. all these crevices and, you know, turns and twists, and the water well, gets pockets. everywhere it needs to go. Yeah, and there's many pockets in that colon, and because one of the facts is the colon is as long as you are tall. Mm-hmm. Also, the diameter, which is crazy to me, even is the size of your wrist. So there are many, you know, um, turns and crevices, and of course, it goes up and around and twists. Right. Um, we all picture. I wish I had a little picture. We all picture that little nice box of a colon. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's scrambled. I even have some X-rays, and because. We, things just move around. Um, diverticulosis, uh, 10% of people over 40 have those grooves in pockets. 50% uh, is diverticulosis of people over 60. So mm. we want to go in and flush those pockets so things keep moving, you know, um, and, and that's important. Uh, we were going to discuss between cleanses and enzymes, if, uh, or I mean enemas, if you don't mind, kind of for a minute. Yeah, so what or I want to... Yeah, okay, let me just ahead. let me just let me just ask first about the um, the diverticulosis. So the diverticulosis are pockets that develop in your colon. Correct. Now, what's the difference between diverticulosis and diverticulitis? So itis is when it becomes inflamed. Itis, I T I S, with anything is inflammation. Okay. Okay. Colitis, you know those those Arthritis, things. So that right. is right. That's inflammation in an area. Right. Basically, you, you see these people, oh, I'm fine. And all of a sudden he's doubled over like something stabbed him in the gut and they go to the emergency. Uh-huh. Um, that's because something has been manifesting in that mm-hmm. colon. And right. now it's like, oh, my goodness. And now diverticulitis. Yes, we need an antibiotic to treat that. Got Depending it. on the severity, which, 
Now your colonoscopy, which is a doctor's procedure, right? then they want to take you in and look to see maybe what kind of damage is done into the colon. I am all preventative. I want to rid your toxins before toxins rid you. We want to prevent disease before we treat disease. So colon hydrotherapy is preventative. Colon, uh, uh, colonoscopy is a medical procedure done to look for disease, remove polyps, et cetera. Got it. So let's talk about what you mentioned before. So um, I'm sure people, without going to a colon, colon hydrotherapist or a doctor, at home they might try laxatives or enemas or cleanses. <laughs> can you, t- and, 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 you know, that kind of, I mean, you know, they do have results, but can you tell me? what the disadvantages are and then what the advantages are of colon hydrotherapy over those. It's again, I'm all into very much more natural, uh, you know, remedies Mm -hmm. and what happens with the laxatives. And this was told where I found my information. I was reading from a, you know, doctor, he does full colon cleanses, but it's Mm -hmm. done in a different way. Um, The laxatives still create diarrhea, bloating, discomfort. It's like putting a Band-Aid on it. It's temporary relief. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's what many of our doctors are doing. They're prescribing things that will put a Band-Aid on it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, when it's stagnating um, because of all those grooves and pockets, it kind of gets slushy and, and it stays behind. There's residue that stays behind. The cleanse as well. Basically, do your cleanse. You know, they've got so many different intestinal cleanse um, and there's different areas of your body. Well, you still want to, even during those cleanses, flush that out only because a lot of residue gets stuck on the walls of the colon. Mm. The reason why I have people continue and do maintenance treatments, which we do one. It's not Mm -hmm. like this whole series. I won't let you on the machine like that. That's not my goal. My goal is to have happy flowing, you know, uh, bowel movements. And um, the enemas is just to touch on that. The enemas only go into a certain uh, length and they try to help. I get further and deeper, you know, than just the enema. So the cleansing also a lot of times the laxatives dehydrate the colon Uh and we don't want that. You know, so it gives a temporary relief. And that's why. And in time, all that murky stuff starts collecting around like uh, pipes and collecting around water pipes. And it gets more and more build up and build up. And then it finally closes the, the, you know, the colon off. Wow. Now we have to get that concrete out of our bodies. Got it. So, Jolly, we have just a couple of minutes. Give me a brief background of how you got into this and why you're so excited about it. Well, let's just be honest. I I performed in shows and I traveled all over. I was kind of a party girl and everything. And uh, I was getting a little bit older, figuring out. And I was always really into the natural health. And that was my balance. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I went in and started doing a few. And that led me to here I am like, you know, nine years later. Nine years later. Good. <laughs> Good. And you've really definitely been a journey. <laughs> yeah. And you really feel like you help people. You really get that feedback. Yes. And that's what keeps me going. You know, I keep them going. They keep me going. And uh, it's 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 pretty amazing. It's totally bizarre, but it's very amazing. Great. Good. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Jolly. I know this is short, but it was it's a great introduction to colon hydrotherapy. And I really want to encourage you to be in touch with um, Jolly. She's at AmazingHealingWaters.com. She's in in Las Vegas. 
Um, whether you're in Las Vegas or not, if you want more information, you can get in touch with her. And Jolly, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate you being here today. And I thank you so much. And our time did run out very quickly. It did go, yes. <laughs> we so, all look forward to seeing you again. Yes. Jolly, thank you so much for being here with us. God bless. You're and welcome. S- thank you. Yes, take care. And okay. stay with us, folks, because our next segment is going to be with Sam Goldstein and Bob Brooks. They've just published their 14th book together. And this one's on tenacity and children, nurturing the seven instincts for lifetime success. And it's a really great interview, very insightful. So so stick with us. We'll be back after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, so welcome back for our second segment of Go to Health today. And this time we are talking about a very interesting uh, topic called Tenacity in Children. This is actually a book written by our two guests. It's called Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success. Our first author is Sam Goldstein, PhD. He's a licensed as a psychologist and certified school psychologist in the state of Utah. He's also a board-certified pediatric neuropsychologist, 
He's a fellow of the American Psychological Association and the National Academy of Neuropsychology. He's an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Utah School of Medicine. And since 1980, he has served as clinical director of the Neurology, Learning, and Behavior Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Our second guest is Robert Brooks, PhD. He's one of the leading speakers and authors on the themes of resilience, motivation, school climate, a positive work environment, and family relationships. He uses a strength-based approach that focuses on the development of self-dignity, motivation, hope, and resilience. He's the author of numerous books on self-esteem and resilience, and his offices are in Needham, Massachusetts. Now, in 2001, these two got together, and they transformed the mindset of parents and professionals with their innovative and groundbreaking book, Raising Resilient Children. With the publication of their 14th co-authored book, Tenacity in Children, Goldstein and Brooks are poised once again to transform mindsets as we prepare children to transition into adult life. So welcome to the show, Sam and Robert. Glad to have you here. Distinguished for me, you went from resilient children to tenacity in children. What's the distinction in your minds? There's a stop along the way that you miss between the resilience and the tenacity, uh, self-discipline. But the, the, the quick summary is, after uh, Bob and I had known each other on, on the speaking circuit, what I learned from Bob the day I heard him speak about 26, 27 years ago, he was talking about uh, this revelation he had that what was wrong with children told us where they were in life, but didn't tell us much about where they might go the kids we were both working with experienced multiple challenges and a lot of people had sort of delegated or relegated them to a position of, well, nothing's really going to help these kids. And we began sharing our thoughts about outcome in certain cases. And every time the outcome was predicted, not by our success in fixing what was wrong or in symptom relief, but by finding what Bob refers to as islands of competence in an otherwise ocean of inadequacy, finding what challenges they had and helping them take advantage of them as they transition to an, into adult life. And so ours was the first uh, use of the term in, a, in an applied way, not just a research way, because the term's been around, uh, and it implies functioning well under adversity, not just outcome, but functioning well over time. And, and it seemed to resonate with people, and we wrote a number of books applying that idea, plus a number of science books. We're finishing the third edition of our major handbook on resilience in children. We hope to have it published and available by next year. Uh, and then after a number of years, we realized that understanding what to do to overcome and manage adversity was only effective if you had the self-discipline to stop and open a window between experience and response and take advantage of what you know. Doing what you know and, and knowing what to do are not synonymous. And we began looking at, I'd done quite a bit of writing, we began focusing on self-discipline and wrote a couple of books uh, helping people understand that knowing what to do uh, was one part, but the second part required the self-discipline to do it. And I was still unhappy with that pairing and felt that while I'm not a biological determinist, biology is not destiny, it does affect probability. Mm -hmm. And so I began looking at the research on 
human instincts. What, what do our children bring to the world from an evolutionary basis that helped them transition into adulthood? Our, our, our human ancestors, Homo sapiens, a few hundred thousand years maybe, but, but uh, our human ancestors, two million plus years, how did they do it? There were no schools, there were no parenting books, there were no institutions. So I think parents relied on these instincts that, and I'll let Bob address that because I brought it to him, these instincts that before we even teach them to children, they exhibit them. And I, I felt that that was the missing component of what Bob and I now call the essential triad of, of human development. And again, we picked the term tenacity because we needed a term. I think tenacity is that grit, that drive to keep going. Uh, but in and of itself, it's not an instinct. Got it. So what are those three core pieces you're talking about to summarize for us? The essential triad? Yes. Well, it's resilience, self-discipline, and tenacity. And, you know, a number of years ago, just to give the viewers also and listeners a a little background, and this is where Sam and I really clicked, I often look at what what were some of the experiences that I had that led me from what we call a medical model And part of the fun of this book was Sam and I sharing experiences along the way with those situations or patients that really taught us. It was almost like they were saying, get away from a deficit model and start using a model that will help. So as I look at my career, Jonathan, I I was brought up what I would say the medical model. You know, you looked at what was wrong and you fixed it. I don't want to overly simplify it. Mm -hmm. One experience I had was working in the inner city of Boston. And I started becoming very interested in hearing people's lives. I worked there for four years. Why is it that some people could grow up under racism and poverty and, and as adults be as hopeful and as optimistic as they are and others not? And it was, you know, it's a very complicated question or complicated answer but it's that's this goes back you know 45 years ago that started to stir my uh you know really interest and then the job that really or position that really got me going was the hospital here uh, it's teaching psychiatric teaching hospital for harvard medical school mclean hospital and uh i ran in patient unit was actually uh the school unit and it was at that point that more and more i felt we were spending so much time on looking at diagnoses and these treatment plans hardly mentioned strengths. And I, it was at that point also, as we did longitudinal studies, that I started to ask, uh, why is it that some of these kids with very difficult backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, having been even hospitalized, why is it that some were doing much better than others? So I started to write about resilience, as Sam noted, I think in the early 80s, I started to say, we have to start identifying islands of competence, not just, you know, this ocean of inadequacy. Mm -hmm. I started to write about that and became more and more interested. I must say I was having more fun doing clinical work. And little did I know, years later, research was going to emerge that showed when you create positive emotions in your, you know, in any interaction, it actually activates parts of the brain that have a lot to do with problem solving and well-being. And then there was, it was now 29 years ago, and I had, certainly Sam was one of the foremost researchers and writers in the field of ADHD. 
And it was at that meeting that I spoke about resilience and Sam and I had lunch and we started talking and then the next year and uh, out of that has come a really fun filled uh, and very exciting and productive, I would say, uh, collaboration. So we wrote about resilience and Sam went through it and then self-discipline. When he came to me with the idea of tenacity, this is when you have a great collaboration. My first concern was, is this too much like our first book, Raising Resilient Children? But as I got into it, I had more time. We wrote most of it during the pandemic. Or a lot of it, what excited me, and then I will stop because you could see my excitement. What excited me was these were all these instincts, as we use the term instincts, were there at birth. And as one of our reviewers said, it was very hopeful to see it that way. It's not like you have to plant the seeds. The seeds are there. What we have to do is nurture these seeds. And so when Sam presented it, what was exciting for me is I started to think of a number of patients where these principles certainly applied right there. And so we started to write in all of our books for uh, trade books for lay person, it, it, our books are filled with actual examples that really can come alive for the reader. Great, Bob, I just want to dig a little bit into, you talked a little bit before about how positive reinforcement can really light up areas of the brain. Can you say positive more? Emo- positive emotions. Positive emotions, sorry, thank you. Yes. Positive emotions can light up. Can you say more about that? Because I know people probably struggle with, you know, how do I control an out of control kid? What's the best way to handle it? When you're engaged in certain activities, it activates parts of the brain that have to do with problem solving and well-being and self-discipline. So this school they started at the University of Wisconsin, they showed that just even twice a week, having kids involved in displaying kindness, altruistic behavior. And what was exciting is these are the things Sam brought and said, you know, they're there from birth. They're there from birth. That what Davidson said is, we must remember there's great plasticity in the brain and no one should be written off. And we have to think about how do we activate those parts of the brain that have to do with well-being and learning and self-discipline. So when I heard him, this is before Sam presented this wonderful idea of tenacity and the seven instincts. When I heard him, I thought it was exciting. And then Sam comes along and we there's all this research out there, Jonathan. Wonderful research at a few months old, kids are already showing the uh, precursors, if you will, of empathy and compassion. So I got excited when I started using the metaphor of violence of competence. I realized that in my interviews with parents and with teachers, I focused so much on what was wrong with the child that I spent very little time on islands of competence. And there was an epiphany I had. I asked myself, what would happen if at a meeting with parents or teachers after just 15, 20 minutes, I was to say, now that I've heard about some of the difficulties, what do you see as your son or daughter or student strengths, their beauty, their islands of competence? Those meetings got so much more productive. Then 30 years later, I'm reading some of Davidson's work or Sean Aker's work. And I'm saying, yeah, something was actually going on, I think, in the brain, help people be better problem solvers, decision makers, more willing or receptive to look at a different approach. Even I would suspect 
it's important for the child or the adult or the person to recognize their own islands of competence instead, instead of just getting the constant negative feedback they might be getting. Yes. I started asking kids, what do you see as your islands of competence? And the problem was often, I don't know, I don't know. And I felt like saying, look, we're trying to develop a strength-based model. Let's be more cooperative here. But, uh-huh. but then I would simply say things like, and Sam and I have talked about this so much, you know, well, this is for us to figure out. Or do you know why I'm even asking you that question? Why it's important for people to also think of their strengths. So you turn into problem-solving, therapeutic goal, if you will. But I think kids should, should also be us. I started asking parents and teachers, what do you see as your islands of competence? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it changes the tenor of a meeting. And these were some of the exciting meetings all along the way for 29 years that Sam and I had in terms of you know, writing these books and developing these notions. Let me lay a little foundation so people can understand. First, biology is not destiny. It affects probability. You can have all the genes to speak. If no one speaks to you, you'll never talk. You could have all the genes to socialize. If not given the opportunity, you won't do it. So complex human behavior, the genes provide the opportunity, but the experience determines the extent to which those genes will express themselves. When we're talking about things like optimism and empathy and motivation, that as as Bob's pointed out, there's plenty of research to show that children exhibit this, this pattern of behavior very early on. Now, Bob's comment in Davidson's research about certain parts of the brain uh, turning on or turning off and how positive experiences impact not just behavior, but, but self-perception, there's a little spot in the right prefrontal cortex. The only time it innervates is when a baby comes in the room. Really? within (laughs) Within a half a second, everyone stops. If we want to solve the political logjam in D.C., (laughs) we should bring a cadre of babies into the Senate and the the House and make them hold babies while they advocate for their positions. Believe it or not, there's this little spot because our babies are completely helpless. And, and require a lot of time and effort and care, and they disrupt our lives. So, you know, babies give us a social smile. They make eye contact. Children with autism struggle with that. But, but early on, th- there's a spot in the brain. And when a baby comes in the room, and, and your listeners, you, here's proof of the pudding, the real litmus test. Next time you're in a room with a group of people and a new baby, watch the men. The men raise their voices as if they're speaking within the range of women, because babies' ears, the muscles in babies' ears are set to hear women's voices more than men's. And children with autism, Steve Porges' research shows, unfortunately, often their ears are set within a lower frequency, listening for sounds of predators, for example. This morning, I evaluated a five and a half year old, very bright, very impulsive, and very opinionated five-year-old. And uh, it was a challenge getting him to go through the tasks I wanted him to do. And I asked him, what do you really like doing? And this is a kid whose bottom maybe was on the chair about 20% of the time, and his feet were on my testing desk 30% of the time. Uh, And he said, I like to draw. And I put a piece of paper in front of him, and I said, make anything you want. He drew this tree and him in a swing, and he must have spent at least five minutes drawing this and, and his body stopped moving, and he was focused, and he smiled, and he showed it to me. I had him draw a picture of his family. He wasn't as excited about that, but he did it. Uh, 
you know, that, that's the, the, the perfect example of how, um, how an experience drives how the brain responds. And this poor little boy is doing the best he can. I mean, his nervous system is so on edge that mm-hmm. any little bit of agitation, uh, any little bit of stimulation, he, he's having a very hard time regulating himself. And, and that's what I tell parents with. This is a, a quality of, of temperament. So that's kind of in a nutshell. But again, listeners should understand resilience is a process. Self-discipline is a process. Tenacity is a description of, of a, a group here, of a group of, of seven positive and three negative instincts that everyone develops. And as Bob pointed out, for some children, there may be not as strong a push genetically. For other children, their experiences alienate them. And those genes never have a chance to develop. And it's amazing the stories that Bob and I have when you take a child who is very contrary and oppositional and says, well, I'm not going to help anybody. But you put them in a position where someone needs their help. And it's amazing how they rise up to the occasion. And as you're well aware, the research on giving people someone to care about or giving the elderly a plan to take care of or a pet or how magically it works in terms of shifting their mindset. Again, mindsets, we're not talking about the physical brain. We're talking about a mindset and minds can always be changed. Great. All right. This has been a great introduction. We'll be back in just a moment with Sam Goldstein and Bob Brooks uh, talking about their new book, Tenacity in Children, which you can find at tenacityinchildren.com. Stick with us. We'll be back right after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Tune in every week for classical guitar around the world. Host Kevin Collins is a renowned guitar performer and enthusiast who shares his love, knowledge, and reverence of classical guitar, along with his friends, many of the world's leading guitar performers and composers. Become a part of the history and take a look inside one of our world's greatest musical instruments. From medieval times to now and into the future, join the American Segovia for classical guitar around the world, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In. 
with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, we're back with Sam Goldstein and Bob Brooks, the authors of Tenacity in Children. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the content of the book so you get a better understanding of what they cover. Sam, you talk about three instincts that cause many of today's problems. Can you tell us what that means and what needs to change about that? Initially, I thought maybe these are positive instincts, but the more I learned about them, the more I felt that they, they, they've surpassed their usefulness in how our society seems to go about employing them. And the first one is belief. Belief is a valuable ally in the absence of fact. Unfortunately, some people hold on to their beliefs even when fact is on the table. You can see the challenges we have today in getting accurate information about COVID. Consider that for a long time, millions of years, you had to believe when the sun went down, it would come up the next day. When you didn't find water today, you might find it tomorrow, sustenance. So I think beliefs in our genes, you can see how it works to help us, but you can also see how belief can work against you. I believe my religion's better than yours. I believe my skin color is better than yours. I believe my country is better than yours. There's there's a fine line between being proud of who you are and being accepting of others who are not. Mm -hmm. And, And belief has terribly disrupted that. Again, I'm not against religion. I'm not against belief, but you can see how it's used as a sledgehammer by lots of people today. So that was one. And the second one is uh, a fear of difference because for millions of years, you didn't eat those red berries if you ate them once and got sick. You carefully sought out in your environment that which had been demonstrated to you to be safe. And look at how fear of difference strikes us today. What's the advantage of thinking this way? How did it evolve? And again, I would argue it evolved because within our genes, we're programmed to be afraid of difference. It doesn't mean that that has to be how we live our lives. It means we have to understand that our first response sometimes to someone or something that's different may be a little adverse. And you have to stop and say, no, there's no reason to be this way. This is why we have frontal lobes. We can think. And the third one is uh, the term brain dancing, Dean Falk's term, that at any given moment, any of us could respond aggressively. It is an aggressive response to real or perceived danger. Because a million years ago, Jonathan, 
if you had some food and I didn't, and I hit you over the head with a large stick and took your food, there were no police, there were no courts, there was no justice. Justice was determined by who was left standing. Right. And, and I'm not saying that's a good way of existing in a complicated culture or a complicated world. Uh, so these three instincts got us where we are. We wouldn't be here without them. I well, yeah, they, they, were, they were necessary for survival in a lot of times. Correct. But in right. the last, I would argue, in the last few thousand years, they've slowly and insidiously worked against us. So watch the news tonight and think about how adverse belief, fear of difference, and aggressive response to any problem, any challenge, has in a lot of ways driven how we've created a world for ourselves. Now, those three drove you to new thinking about how we should be working today and especially working with development of kids. You've talked about in the book, the seven instincts of tenacity. Can we talk a little bit about those? One of the ones is intuitive optimism. Kids from birth really are optimistic. If you think about a child taking his or her first steps and they fall, imagine if the child said, this really sucks, I'm not going to try to walk. And so what we try to do in each of the chapters, each of these instincts as a separate chapter, the seven instincts is say, okay, we have a lot of examples from a very early age. This is what really excited me, Jonathan, as I briefly mentioned before, that these are there from really from birth. We call them instincts. We see this optimism, this getting up each morning and really feeling that you can have a better outcome of things. And as I was saying, in each chapter, we try to give examples to saying to parents or caregivers, here are ways of doing it. And we give actual examples from our clinical practice, from our consultations to provide those examples. Another one is one of our favorites, intrinsic motivation. Years ago in my workshops, I started asking myself, what is your theory of motivation? You know, what exactly is it? What guides what you do? You, you can't really, well, I guess you could try to force people to do something, but it's intrinsic. How do you foster intrinsic motivation from birth? There is an inborn need in every baby to master his or her environment. And so what happens, unfortunately, this is where sometimes well-meaning adults could get in the way is, that sometimes we give rewards for kids in school who are struggling, that the reward actually goes against intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. Rather than figure out how to help the kid feel better about him or herself or learn more effectively. And we, in our book, we give a fair bit of research at an early age, when you start rewarding kids for behaviors that they would have done intrinsically, it actually lessens their interest in doing it intrinsically. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I first started using the concept of violence of competence, one of the first patients I used it with was a kid who felt so defeated in school that he actually ended up telling me he'd rather hit another kid and be sent to the principal's office than be in a classroom where he felt like a dummy. Well, as Sam mentioned, one of the things we ask kids is, what do you like to do? What do you enjoy doing? And this kid said, I love taking care of pets. And he ended up becoming the pet monitor of the school. He had a wonderful principal and school teacher. He lectured in every classroom by the end of the year, how to take care of pets. And he wrote a little book for the school library, how to take care of pets. His negative behavior stopped. He no longer was hitting kids. Yeah. He, now he was shining. The intrinsic motivation 
really sparked also, of course, by doing something he was interested in and he was skilled in, totally redirected that kid's life. I am convinced if he had not had, if he had not had a wonderful teacher and principal mm-hmm. who were willing not to punish him, but rather to find to, and display his island of competence, he would have gone a different direction. That's so right. these are the things we're saying. It's there. It's what we have to be as parents and caregivers is being very creative, especially with some kids who are more challenging in, in really f- nurturing these uh, these strengths, these instincts. Does this have applicability for adults? Well, I guess actually, is the oh, definitely. Uh, you know, after Sam and I wrote a couple of books about resilience in kids, we wrote a book, Resilience in Adults, through our senior years. And in that book, like all of our books, we give examples of our work with adults where some of them felt that they were not as worthwhile. And we would talk to them. The examples are in the book. We would talk to them about what is that you're interested in? How could you start doing some of these things? And there were people who had islands of competence, but had pushed it to the back because they didn't think very they were very worthwhile. Yeah. And that we go. It's throughout the lifespan. When when Bob and I do workshops for teachers, we explain to them when they ask, how do you motivate a child that you can't motivate a child? You can create an experience and an environment in which a person can find motivation, but you can't force them to be motivated. And that's the premise here that the, the suggestions we offer are not Bob and Sam's seven steps to get your child to listen, go to bed on time and do his homework, but rather your job as a parent is to create experiences in which each of these seven instincts can be nurtured and can develop. And for some children, it's much harder work and you need many more opportunities. There are some children who seemingly lack any kind of compassion, lack any kind of empathy. And when you ask, would you help your friend who fell down on the playground, they say no. And and with those kids, I keep their parents exposing them to opportunities to help others until eventually the kid finds some activity they engage in in helping others that helps drive a sense of, of empathy the, about understanding and appreciating how other people feel. So that's really the premise here. Parents don't have to teach. They don't have to demonstrate by example, as we always tell parents. Sure, that's a good thing. You should live your life the way you want your children to live theirs. But the reality is you create experiences in which these instincts can blossom. When I finish working with a child in counseling, the last thing we do is I ask them if they would like to help someone else. Mm. I ask them if they would like to create anonymously a picture, a poem, a book, a story about themselves and what they've learned and how they've changed that I could give to the next child I begin working with so that child could see that there is a positive outcome, a positive ending. And I have a bunch of them on my desk here. And some kids have gone so far. Bob talks about his boy who made a book for the library, who who have their parents send them into a a, a company and have them bound hardback. Wow. Four or five of them here that kids have had bound hardback. How but wonderful. it's amazing when you, and, and then I don't want to give them up. I want to keep them. <laughs> right. But it's just, it, 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 it's amazing when you put kids in a position to educate others to help others appreciate and better understand a challenge they're experiencing, how much it helps them. But I just want to, I just want to add on that, Jonathan, that is because she asked before that is through the lifespan, wonderful research to show that senior citizens who are actively involved in helping others, controlling for other factors, 
actually lead longer lives and are less stressed. But it's why we're still doing this. Right. <laughs> somewhere around a pool in Florida. Right. <laughs> it gives you purpose. It gives you identity. It, it keeps your brain working. Right, exactly. And that's why I'm doing this. Right. <laughs> Let me, so, 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 yeah, so we just have like one or two minutes here. So give me, give me your spiel on intelligence. It's really important. Yes, please. I think this is the most groundbreaking uh, uh, knowledge and area in child development in a long time. Because we've always said intelligence is set in stone. If your kid's not very smart, they're never going to be very smart. Um, and, and the way the schools have defined gifted with a component of reading achievement and math achievement, it, 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 uh, it almost equates with before 1800, there were no smart people. Nobody could read. Nobody went to school. No, no. Intelligence is about solving problems. And I use the term simultaneous because that's exactly what it means. But it, it, it means just as it says, and it was a term created by A.R. Luria, one of the fathers of neuropsychology. Simultaneous means seeing how all the pieces fit together at the same time. Thinking outside the box is creativity. Seeing all the pieces inside is what critical thinking and intelligence is about. Good critical thinkers, good simultaneous thinkers, good intelligence is about seeing how all the pieces fit together, leaving no piece unconsidered as you solve a problem. And the beauty of it is that there's this wonderful research that has now demonstrated that, that it generalizes. If you teach kids to think critically, to consider variables, to think inductively and deductively, to solve problems, mm -hmm. unlike a lot of the therapies that we've worked with that don't generalize, you teach it in one setting, kid can't seem to use it elsewhere, this generalizes. And in the book, we talk about research that's been done, for example, with middle school students, teaching them not more biology, not more math, not more social studies, but teaching them how to solve problems and finding their grades go up and their IQ scores go up. Because intelligence is not about how much you know. Why should knowledge be a function of intelligence? Knowledge is a function of opportunity. Just don't have that opportunity. True intelligence, in, in one of the tests I developed, and I'll leave it there, the cognitive assessment system, and aboriginal children inland in Australia and, and suburban average children and very affluent uh, children, on average, perform exactly the same on these tasks at every age in terms of the average performance. And there's a lot parents can do about it. I think this is the most exciting uh, uh, advancement in child development over the next 20 or 30 years, teaching kids to think and manage knowledge. Guys, this has been great. We're out of time. I wish we had more, but we've been talking with Sam Goldstein and Bob Brooks. They are the co-authors of many, many books, but their latest is Tenacity in Children, which you can find online almost anywhere and in many bookstores, and in particular at tenacityinchildren.com. This has been Jonathan Marks with Go to Health. Bob and Sam, thanks for being here today. It's been great to have you. Thank you, my listeners, for being with us today, too. Hope you enjoyed it. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week to Go to Health Radio. Be sure to join Jonathan Marks and another health expert next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You can also catch the program on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next show, be sure to visit us on the web at gotohealthmedia.com and elevate your life.